A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. There are some days that are burned into my memory. Days that are so significant that I remember every minute of what happened. This day started in the middle of the night. I woke up to my phone lighting up. I was barely sleeping because I was sick. Not a little cough or a cold sick. I had the trifecta of a sinus infection, bronchitis, and pneumonia. But the phone didn't stop. And after a quick look at the messages, it was clear it wasn't something I should ignore. I got up and made a quick stop at the doctor in hopes he would offer me a miracle cure. Instead, he put an oxygen mask on me and told me I was too sick to leave. I panicked. A sick day was not an option. When the doctor left the room, I took off the oxygen mask and headed to work. What I was going through was so insignificant compared to the case I was about to cover. Everyone in the newsroom rallied together to cover this story. It was a day that left a scar on the soul of the city. I will never forget that moment till the day I die. Absolutely everything. Honestly, I can't think of anything that's the same. I truly, like, truly believe I died that day. Who I was, um, what my life was, how my family was. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Over the next two episodes of Crime Beat, I'll take you through one of the worst mass killings I've ever covered and share the story of five young people whose loss has left a heartbreaking void that can never be filled. This is the story of the Brentwood Five Massacre. When you live in a city where it feels like it's winter most of the year, people celebrate even the slightest warm spell. It's not unusual to see people out on patios wearing shorts in Calgary in April, even though it's likely only 15 degrees Celsius or 59 Fahrenheit. Shorts are also part of a year-end tradition at the University of Calgary called Bermuda Shorts Day. The day is not really about the shorts. It's a year-end party, and there's always a big event at the university, but the parties often spill off campus. On April 14, 2014, a group of friends decided to have a small get-together at their home near the university campus in the Northwest Calgary neighborhood of Brentwood. Five young people shared a small gray and blue split-level house on a quiet block on Butler Crescent. The house was a well-known rental for university students that many affectionately called the Butler Mansion. It would be a relatively small get-together. Many of those invited went to junior high or high school together. The rest knew each other from university. It was an amazing group of young people that included an accomplished dancer, an aspiring urban planner, 
two amazingly talented musicians and a young man who was well on his way to becoming a humanitarian. For the most part, the mood was laid back and relaxed. No one could have predicted how dark things would get and how quickly it all unraveled. Before I take you through what happened that fateful morning, I need to take you back. I want you to get to know the five young people who are now lovingly remembered as the Brentwood Five. Lawrence Hong was the oldest among this group and the firstborn son of Lorenzo and Marlene Hong. Uh, he's a very social uh, person, a baby. Yeah. He would greet everybody, strangers, he doesn't choose. He just greet everybody and will, will, uh, will wave at everybody. Lawrence was seven when his parents and his younger brother Miles moved to Canada from the Philippines. From a very early age, he expressed an interest in urban design. In elementary school, he enlisted his father's help to build a high-tech bridge out of popsicle sticks. Yeah, he was giving me specs on what, uh, what he needed to do. Well, I had to help him out, right? So I, uh, I make sure that he has enough glue and enough popsicle stick to, to construct. And he was just thinking uh, very long span uh, bridge for his school project. We experimented with quite a few. Of, we throw out a lot of popsicle sticks. It was uh, a trial and error. And when we finished, the, the bridge was around uh, 20 inches long. And when he presented that to the school, I think he won some kind of award for it. Lawrence poured every ounce of himself into anything and everything he did. That included time for fun. He spent a few all-nighters fulfilling quests on World of Warcraft. Kindness emanated from his very soul. He always took time to make his family and friends feel loved. He had a special shyness about him and preferred to be behind the camera than in front of it. So it wasn't unusual for his friends to say they were snapping a photo while actually sneaking a video. Hi, Lawrence. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Are you good? Do you like having your picture taken? Looks are like you sure it's a picture and not a video? Um, no, it's only one picture. Don't! You're going to mess up the shot. <laughs> As Lawrence got older, his passion for urban design and infrastructure grew. He had some time off and then he went back to school. He took up uh, structural engineering. Then he took up power engineering too, but he didn't like it. And then he took up structural engineering at state. And then uh, finished the structural. Then we went to China in 2010. So it was a long holiday where we took them to China and then to Hong Kong. And most of the time we took the transit in Hong Kong and that's how he appreciated the transit. So when he came back, we didn't even realize that he started 
switching his during course. That, because during that time he was uh, studying uh, engineering. He's, he's enrolled in engineering at UOBC. Mm -hmm. And, and, I think he and to after the trip from Hong Kong, somehow it changes him. Something motivates him to move from general engineering to urban studies. Yeah. Thinking back, he spent a day or two days, just the two, the two brothers, taking the transit in and out, in and out, in and out. We were asking, what were you doing the whole day? going in and out of the MTR or the train in Hong Kong. Because he was, I think he was amazed that you could move so many people in so tight a space it's very efficiently. Lawrence saw beauty in buildings, bridges, and structures that most people take for granted. He loved to immerse himself however possible, letting his mind wander dreaming of creating a more innovative future. While in university, he also worked part-time with his mother as a sales assistant for a local home builder. Some might have viewed this as a chore, but not Lawrence. He saw it as an opportunity for growth, and like everything he touched, he put his best foot forward. That was, I guess, the the most enjoyable time that I had with him as a grown-up man. And I was able to see that he had applied what he had studied. And I really had fun remembering those days. Lawrence's younger brother went to school with Katie Paris. She was born on February 5, 1991, and her parents, Greg Paris and Shannon Miller, immediately fell in love with her. She had an older sister and a younger brother. Later, her father remarried, and soon after, Greg and Cam Laraway had a baby. Bring around the roadie, a pocket full of <laughs> Katie was over the moon excited and adored her little sister, and her little sister adored her. My, my daughter, our daughter, her little sister just idolized, idolized her. her, and when she'd come over, like she literally would pet her hair because she had long hair. My daughter, she want, wanted long hair so badly and it just never grew. So she would she just stare at Katie's hair and just like pet it and, and brush know, it and, and brush she'd let her it. brush it incessantly when she was little, yes. like, you know, patience with her sister. From a very young age, Katie's mom remembers she was strong-willed, feisty. <laughs> Mostly she was stubborn, which that was a love-hate thing I had for her because I really admired actually her tenacity in, in standing up for what she believed in, even as like little, little. And I know it uh, irritated a lot of people, or a lot of people think that that might be mm, not disrespectful, but you know what I'm saying, kind of not the best thing for a child to be stubborn. But it wasn't always, it was just really when she <laughs> believed, believed in something. 
and that, you know, as she grew older, that continued on with her friendships and with her family, um, stubborn in that she would protect you and support you and defend you. She knew what she wanted, and she wasn't afraid to take a stand for whatever that was. Well, this is a silly example, but it, I think about it all the time and it makes me laugh. Uh, we went to pick up Nikki, so her older sister, and Katie would have been three. And it was June, and we went to pick her up from school, and Katie wanted to wear her bikini and her cowboy boots. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> you know, here, let's throw a sweater on. And nope, no, nope, she was adamant that this is what she wanted to wear, and I'm like, cool, let's just, let's go with it. And you know, I did get a few comments from some of the moms that it wasn't appropriate, and I'm like, she's three. And good for her for choosing what she wanted to wear. And I know that's silly, but it, it showed me right then and there that she had a mind of her own. That tenacity gave her father comfort. He never worried she would be taken advantage of. She turned into a very strong woman um, very sensitive woman that protected her heart with a somewhat of a crusty exterior but it was to protect a very sensitive inner side and she's fiercely loyal to all of her friends and all of her family so there's many occasions where she would like tune in a friend's boyfriend for not treating her friends well and that was pretty typical of her. Like she had a strong opinion. She was willing to share it. And in that way, she was a lot like me. So we had a kindred kind of spirit. We knew at six months she was different than her older sister, that she was more headstrong and stubborn. And, and the truth, when you have three daughters like I do, I like that a lot because she was obviously going to be capable of taking care of herself and you know how difficult sometimes it can be for women especially in relationships with strong men or difficult men I never worried about her having the ability to take care of herself uh, not only in her working life but in her relationships so she did not settle for any situation that didn't work for her School came easily to Katie. She loved to write, but it was only when she was introduced to dance that she truly found her calling. It was always great to watch her dance because she was so passionate and, and her, her face lit up when she danced. You could tell that was her passion and that's where she was headed in her life. She had finally realized at 23 years old after trying a few different things at school, that being a dance teacher was a great profession and she was, she was doing it. And the kids were at the school, she was going into schools and the kids were responding like incredibly to her because she could command a room. How exciting was it for you as a mom seeing her just like find that thing? Was everything, yeah. Yeah. She struggled a lot, sorry. Yeah, she struggled a lot to figure out what she wanted to do. And I think because her older sister 
was so solid in what she wanted, like she just knew. And I mean, of course that's very rare as it was, but Katie floundered a little bit, not really knowing where her, what direction she should go in. And I think too, because she was 23, she thought, you know, she should be getting herself together and knowing what she wanted to do. So yeah, when she, she decided on that, it was, she just lit up like from inside, so her eyes were glowing again, and she had some this confidence that I hadn't seen for a really long time. So that was just really, really special to see. Katie knew Jordan Segura from high school. They shared a circle of friends. He was raised by Patty Segura, a single mother. And he had a brother who was only 17 months older than him. I can tell you they were each other's first friends. You know, Jordan followed Julian around. Even before he could move and crawl, he was watching every move Julian made. Patty and her boys were like the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. We did pretty much everything together. Um, the kids started skiing and snowboarding when they were quite young. I think they were probably about seven, eight years old. So the three of us, me and the two kids, we often went to Nikiska. This is before the kids were driving and having part-time jobs. Many, many times we went to Nikiska and spent the day there. The kids would snowboard and I would ski and they were much better than me, so they would have to come and check on me throughout the day, but we had great days. Jordan was outgoing and social, but as much as he loved his friends, he also loved to spend time on his own, playing video games. Well, one weekend, me and Julian went away. Julian went away for school, and I went with him the first time just to help him get set up. And so we were gone for the weekend, and all Jordan had to do was stay home and take care of the dog. So he, when I got back on Sunday, he had these empty candy wrappers all over the coffee table. And it was quite obvious that he just sat there all weekend and played Xbox. In university, Jordan was taking history and religious studies and ended up interviewing a funeral director for a research paper. He made such a good impression, the funeral home offered him a job. He just fit in so well. He was, so he was like the host. He was a limo driver for the families. So he had to go get his license to be able to drive a limo. And uh, he, he had no problem going to work every day. He loved his job. He would, you know, set up the area for visitation. He'd bake cookies. He'd make coffee and made juice for everybody. And he would be there for them. Doesn't matter what they wanted, he was there for them. He was there to greet them at the door when they arrived. You know, if he was driving the limo, he would drive the family wherever they wanted to go. He spent time with families just waiting for them. If, if their family member was buried at a cemetery, you know, the funeral would be over, everybody would leave. And they want, if the family, the mom and dad wanted to stay, he would just wait. He was patient. Jordan wanted to be a humanitarian. Empathy and humanity was at the very core of who he was. 
the funeral home found it to be a major asset. They asked Jordan if he would do a training video for the rest of the staff. So he was supposed to go around and meet with all the religious leaders in Calgary and interview them and find out their um, end-of-life ceremonies for their religions. And then he was going to put it all together and then his work was going to use this as a training video for all of the staff. Because, you know, you don't want to offend anybody when you're doing their end-of-life ceremony. So, like a lot of people said, well, what are you going to do when you're done, you know, because that's not a common thing to do. He wasn't going to be a teacher or a dentist or anything like that. And he said right off the bat, when he graduated from university, he was going to be a consultant for businesses and the government that have officials that travel to other countries around the world. And he was going to explain to them about the other cultures in these countries that they were going to so that they wouldn't offend the people, you know. So this way, if he taught them, when you go to this country, make sure you do this, this, and don't do this, you know. So that was his his plan for when he got out of university. Josh Hunter was one of Jordan's friends from high school. His parents, Kelly and Barkley Hunter, met when they were just 17, but they both took some time to travel and see the world. I was going sailing in the British Virgin Islands. I asked her to come. Well, you can edit that out anyways. Uh, uh, And uh, we went sailing and then decided we were going to, you know, get married, married, (laughs) settle down. And um, so we just, you know, kind of hit the ground running. Off we went, house, dog, (laughs) kid. Another kid. Josh was the oldest, and he loved spending time with his parents and little sister. He was known for his giant hugs and was always the one to offer comfort by wrapping his arms around his family and friends. Tender soul. Yeah, tender soul, great, great kid. (laughs) Um, You know, always just, uh, we lived out in the country, so it was just a lot, you know, great, he had a great life. He lived... Um, lived life to the fullest. It became clear very early on, Josh was born to be a musician. Uh, We got him into music very early. Um, I think he was 10 when he started playing drums. He's very passionate about that, connected with music in a big way, and that was a big part of his journey. And even from the get-go, he was the kind of kid that you weren't going, oh, God, I wish he, but he could do it. Yeah. So it wasn't, you weren't just hearing a bunch and of a smash and bash, and it was, he was actually, yeah. he had rhythm. We had a room uh, where, you know, the music room where it was set up, and, and uh, so he worked at it and was involved in music at school and started a band, and, um, you know, it was just a big part of his life. He was in grade 11. When they started, Zachariah and the Prophets and Zach and Barry were in grade 10. They had a really cool sound. It was yeah. different. Yeah, they were kind of like, um, kind of like, like an indie, like Chili Pepper, kind of Black Keys mix, that kind of thing, kind of an indie with, with some funk. And, uh, and they always wanted to um, make sure that people were moving to their music. You know, that had to have groove, it had to have a good feel. And so that was a big part of it. 
for them. Josh was focused on making it in the music industry. He thought, you know, if he could play music and he was starting to get ramped up on producing music and then he could, you know, understand the music business and, and approach it from that side. So it was really kind of bringing it all together. But, you know, we were pushing him, you know, go to school, get a, get an education, and then you can you know, fall back on that if you need to, but, you know, keep doing your music as well. He loved to perform and came alive on stage. Even on days when the band wasn't playing, he would find an audience to connect with. You know, he made a point of connecting with people and uh, he'd go down to Princess Island Park and busk and so he was excited. Zachariah Rathwell was one of Josh's closest friends and part of the band. They all felt he had the coolest name, so they became Zachariah and the Prophets. His name was carefully chosen by his parents, Bruce and Rhonda Lee Rathwell. I liked Zach, um, and I was really um, cognizant of the fact that names get shortened. And um, I like—I just—I liked Zachariah, and I liked the sound of it and the flow of it, and um, and I liked the shortened version Zach. So, um, but I didn't like Zach. So that's why he's Z-A-C-K-A-R-I-A-H. And we used to joke that he was going to be 20 before he knew how to spell his name. Um, I have a, a footstool that has his name carved into it in blocks. It's like a puzzle. And um, uh, he used to, that was, you know, he'd stand on it to brush his teeth and things like that. And that, uh, <laughs> that, was, that was how he learned to spell his name because he saw it. <laughs> twice a day, it was always there. When he was just a little boy, it became clear Zach was gifted with a wildly creative mind. He was in the playpen and I had, I was doing laundry or something and I had to go up and downstairs. So I popped him in the playpen and I put on Fantasia, Disney's Fantasia. And he stood there and he sang along and he conducted and he would talk like he was given a soliloquy. And he loved that, that video. He would watch it over and over. His love of Fantasia was a hint of his passion for music that would come to light just a few years later. He was in, I'm gonna say grade seven, and he wanted, um, he wanted a guitar, and he wanted guitar lessons. And um, I mean, anybody that has kids knows that they go through these sort of phases, and do you really want to do that? Is that something you really want to do? Like, am I going to go out and spend $200 on something, and it's going to get thrown in a closet? And he was, nope, I want to play guitar. And um, by that time, uh, Bruce and I were divorced, and so there wasn't a lot of extra money. And I had a girlfriend whose daughter had done exactly that. Oh, I want to play guitar. And they had bought her a guitar and an amp. And um, it was now sitting in the back of the closet. <laughs> and so she sold it to me for really cheap. And that was Zach's first guitar. And he never stopped playing. Zach spent hours and hours practicing in the basement. The sound of him strumming would waft upstairs and bring a special calm to his mother. 
His progress was remarkable. His talent, undeniable. He also had a very original voice, so he took on the role of lead vocals. Zach had found his true love in music. He came to me and he said he'd really like to take a year and just work on his music. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's fair. Are you going to go to school? Or what do you mean when you say work on your music? And he said, well, I just want to write and play and, and um, you know, hang out with musicians. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> really? Um, and so we actually came to an agreement that he would clean the house once a month and that would be his rent. And so he did. He, once a month, he'd kick us all out, no one could be home, and he would clean from top to bottom and, and he did a really good job and that was, that was our agreement. Zachariah and the Prophets wasn't just a group messing around. The four friends were talented musicians who were making waves in Calgary. On April 12, 2014, two days before the party, the band celebrated a major milestone, the release of their first EP. They described the album as a love child of five years of funky good times that came together in one crazy weekend. We were at the Palomino, sold out, My packed room. <laughs> Kelly's 82, yeah, up on the chair grooving. The band was in, you know, great form, doing a great show. And we were, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a huge night. There was a lot leading up to that, getting the EP done and then getting it all pulled together. And, and it, was a, it was an amazing night and we were all super happy they were so pumped so excited about it and got a lot of validation for the music that they were doing you know it was really cool the release was everything the band had ever dreamed of it was great all the bands were wonderful and then really when when zach and and the boys got up there they just they just had everybody dancing and moving and and cheering and yeah it was just it was it was pretty amazing i have some video from that night that's very very special in the meantime the roommates at the butler mansion in brentwood including jordan segura spent several days tidying up they were excited for their bermuda shorts day party the last time we saw jordan was at home uh, Julian was working in the garage and I was in the kitchen and Jordan wanted to borrow the gardening equipment so he could clean up the yard at Butler and uh, so he loaded up the little trailer and he was leaving like I was in the kitchen he walked past behind me and said bye mom and and I said make sure you lock up that garden equipment because somebody's going to steal it and he walked through the garage, said goodbye to Julian and left. And that was Sunday, Sunday evening. And then on uh, Monday evening, 
I sent him a quick text and about eight and I knew there was going to, there was going to be a party at Butler and I attached a picture of our dog to the text and I said, are you partying Jordan? And he replied, yes, Max. So that was the last text. And that was the last time we saw Jordan. Katie had planned to go see her high school friends, Josh and Zach, playing at their EP release party. But she didn't end up making it. Instead, she planned to catch up with them at her friend Jordan's party the following Monday. She didn't go out very much. She, she was definitely a homebody. And that was one of the reasons why she called, because she was telling me that she was going to go to this party. And I mean, it was with all her friends that she grew up with and went to school with. It wasn't some crazy university party that, you know, anybody and everybody was showing up to. It was just a really great group of kids. Lawrence Hong had been burning the midnight oil, trying to finish his last term paper. We're just inside the house. He will send me a text, Dad, could you make me coffee? So I go down and make him coffee, right? For two nights, I definitely will never forget that one. The machine was running overtime, right? The espresso machine was brewing everything. I never saw our machine works uh, continuously. So he wasn't sleeping for basically 48 hours uh, to finish his term paper. By Monday morning, he was finally done, but he was exhausted. And he didn't think it was safe to drive, being so sleep-deprived. He asked his dad to take him. His mom also went along for the ride. He was like a Greek philosopher. And the way he talked, he treated me as a student. I didn't know. It was a sign that he was matured, and also a sign that all my training, I'm going. He's going to the next life. Lorenzo loved every second of that drive, and he wanted it to last, so he slowed down. When they finally arrived, Lawrence had to run to get to class on time and was likely unaware of the lasting impact that final discussion would have on his parents. When Marlin moved from the back to the front seat, I said, uh, my He's dad has passed away then. I said, I thought, uh, I said to Marlene, Papa would be very proud of Lawrence. Didn't know the significance. Because he would be very proud of what he had become. Just by that uh, short uh, conversation. conversation, he has shown maturity beyond years. That day, the Bermuda Shorts Day parties were underway at the university. Josh shared a video of the festivities on social media with the caption, Crazy Town BSD. He parked there in the morning and rode his bike to school, went to Bermuda Shorts Day. Zach was taking classes at the Alberta College of Art and Design, now known as the Alberta University of the Arts. After school, he went home and told his mom he planned to meet up with Josh and the rest of their friends in Brentwood. 
I specifically remember standing by the stove with him and him telling me what he was doing that night and um, that, uh, that he only had a couple more classes left before he was done and um, that he was just gonna, he was planning on drinking and he was gonna ride his bike, he wasn't gonna drive, um, but he was gonna stay over there and then he would just ride his bike to ACAD in the morning because it was close. And um, I just told him I loved him. And he said he loved me and I gave him a kiss. I had to stand on my tippy toes, give him a kiss. And he helped me carry the stuff out to the car and I drove off. And that was the last time I saw him. The party was pretty chill. Just a relaxed get together, nothing crazy or out of hand. A few people hung around the fire pit in the backyard, others inside the house. There was one guy who stood out. He was 22 years old and was invited by Brendan, one of the roommates of the Brentwood house. They were childhood friends. He arrived late to the party and his conversations seemed ominous. He was going on and on about conspiracy theories. Most of the people didn't think much of it. This wasn't a judgmental group. But his behavior got more and more strange. At one point, he put on blue surgical gloves and even kept them on when he washed his hands. He also carried garlic in his pocket. He started talking about things like the blood moon, the apocalypse, and vampires. At around 1 a.m., a group of friends went to a nearby McDonald's to pick up food. In the meantime, Lawrence's lack of sleep caught up to him. He fell asleep on a love seat in the living room. Josh, Katie, and Jordan were all sitting together on a couch across the room. Zach was in the kitchen. What happened next happened quickly and unexpectedly. Matthew, the guy that had been acting strangely all night, suddenly took a large chef's knife from a block in the kitchen. He stabbed Zach seven times then went into the living room. There was no warning, no fight, no altercation. He went up to Josh and stabbed him six times. Jordan was beside Josh. He was stabbed once. Matthew was a stranger to them, and he was on a rampage. Katie tried to escape. She ran out of the living room but he quickly caught up to her in the dining room. She was stabbed four times. Lawrence was still asleep in the living room when he was stabbed four times. In the meantime, despite suffering life-threatening injuries, Josh got up and ran out of the front door of the house. Matthew followed him. At that same time, the group who had gone to pick up fast food returned to hear Katie's screams from inside the house and witnessed Matthew chasing Josh down the street with a kitchen knife in his hand. 
Brendan, the roommate who invited Matthew, ran after him. Josh was still in a fight for his life and ran back towards the house where he collapsed on the front lawn. Brendan caught up to Matthew down the street. He was holding the kitchen knife above his head with the blade pointed downward. Brendan grabbed his hand and told him to calm down. Matthew finally handed over the blood-soaked knife and told him it was the night of the long knives and then took off. And again, Brendan caught up with him. Matthew wiped his bloody hands on Brendan's hands and told him they were blood brothers. He warned his friend not to get in his way or he would be next. Brendan let Matthew go and ran back to check on his other friends. Meanwhile, back at the house, one of the other roommates was in her room. She put headphones on to watch TV and drown out any noise from the party. She was startled by the sound of screaming and yelling. She locked her bedroom door and called 911. She was the first of several calls for help. Then she made her way down the stairs, horrified by what she found. She quickly joined the group of young people trying to provide first aid to the victims. It took first responders just minutes to arrive on scene. Zach, Jordan, and Lawrence were already gone. It's hard to get across just how quickly this all unfolded. When homicide detective Matt Demarino's phone rang early that morning, he had no idea the magnitude of the case he was about to take charge of. I will never forget that moment till the day I die. He's a veteran, seasoned investigator, and he was shocked by what his staff sergeant told him. I uh, was in bed and uh, asleep. I got, took the call at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and my boss told me, um, we have three people dead. We have two more who are about to die. Demarino estimates all five victims were stabbed in less than a minute. Josh was rushed to hospital, but passed away about a half hour later. Katie was also taken to hospital, but despite medical intervention, she was pronounced dead at three that morning. The scene back at the house was frenzied. Almost immediately after the 911 calls were made, Matthew was spotted by police running frantically away from the crime scene, and he quickly moved out of sight. The canine unit was dispatched to the area. He was then spotted jumping out of a dumpster into a nearby alley. Police told him to stop, but he kept running. One of the police service dogs was deployed and caught up to Matthew. The dog tried to jump his chest, and he fought back, punching the dog in the head. 
canine unit officers noted he had a blank stare on his face and appeared to have no fear of the police service dog, which was unusual. They continued to issue commands to stop and get on the ground. Instead, Matthew ran towards one of the officers and took a swing. The young man's bloody fist brushed up on the officer's forearm. He turned to face another investigator in a boxing stance. That officer punched him in the face and knocked him to the ground as the police service dog bit Matthew's right arm. Officer said he showed no signs of pain and he continued to fight back as they put him under arrest. Inside his pocket, police found a latex glove and he had a clove of garlic in his sock. He told the officer it was to keep the vampires away and said he wanted to speak to a lawyer. He was put into an ambulance and told EMS, I was just trying to kill them before they killed me. Um, We've never seen anything like this either before or since, thankfully, um, in Calgary. Police began the arduous process of interviewing the highly traumatized witnesses and uncovered unexpected details of Matthew's behavior leading up to and immediately following the massacre. All of the facts in this case are documented by the courts, and I'll explain it all in more detail in the next episode. This was the single biggest mass killing in Calgary's history. Parents of hundreds of university students would wake up to the horrifying news, and dozens would call police panic-stricken, wondering if their children were the ones killed. That caused us a lot of concern. So um, obviously, you know, very shortly after this happened, the news broke of it. And um, um, we had a situation where we had a tremendous amount of parents waking up in the morning, watching the news and realizing that five university students had been killed. And of course, their own kids had been out celebrating, you know, Bermuda Shorts Day and can imagine trying to call and maybe those kids aren't up yet or their phones aren't on anymore and all that kind of stuff and the panic uh, set in. Five families were about to be shattered beyond repair. News of the deaths of their five children, siblings, loved ones has impacted every aspect of their lives and that pain will never go away. How could one person kill five people and so quickly? And an even bigger question was why? And why these five victims? That's next time on Crime Beat. Thank you so much for listening. If this is the first time you've listened to Crime Beat, please go back and take the time to check out the other stories I've shared. These are all such important cases. And please consider sharing Crime Beat with your friends. I would love to have you give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, for his work on this episode. If you have a question about one of the episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can send me a message on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T.